The Game Schooler Podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network, is a weekly audio show that educates new and experienced gamers about the joys of tabletop gaming. In this week's episode, we'll cover Dog Park, our game of the week, discuss what makes complexity in the school of gaming, and wrap it up with our high five party games for gamers. Welcome to the Game Schooler Podcast. I'm your host, Doug Kotecki, along with my co-host, the esteemed Dr. Michael McCabe. How's it going, Michael? What's happening, Doug? How are you? Good. I feel like it's been a week since I've talked to you. Yeah, it's been a while, man. <laughs> this is good. And we are chugging along through June. June is a season where I lose my voice for the entire month. So I'm I'm going to try to just just bring pa- a good episode. Pa- I'll try to, Yeah, yeah. I, I always, well, you know, when I listen to a podcast and somebody has a cold or a sinus infection, it's like, why don't you take the week off? And now here I'm that guy because the podcast must go on. You better take it easy on those intros then. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, that's where I will put all my energy and focus. All right. Well, let's follow up with some stuff from last week. I uh, just want to remind everybody that we are giving away a copy of Fire Tower from Goliath Games to one of our Discord server users. So, Sign up, go over there, join that community. It's an awesome community. We just added um, a bunch of stuff for game schooling, and uh, there's discussion about family games and kids' games, so you can get some of those discussion guides and subject and skill builders, uh, maybe use in your classroom or for your family game nights that were behind a paywall. Now they're free if you join the Discord server. Yeah, and I appreciate all the activity on there. I don't comment as much, but I, I'm reading every post. and Lurker. my Well, <laughs> my want and trade list has grown. My want to play list has grown. I'm learning a lot about new games, which yeah. is cool. And the way that, that families are using them. Yeah. You know, yeah, and, yeah. and playing with their kids. So it's really cool to see. So there's a whole bunch of great content over there. Uh, so sign up. You can sign up at uh, gameschooler.com slash discord. Uh, we've got the the directions, instructions yep. uh, there to learn about Discord and and the link to sign up there. So Nice to see some podcast celebrities jump in as well. I yeah. saw Anitra on there from the Family Gamers. Oh, well, did you think I was talking about you? <laughs> okay, no. But no, we, important people. The, I assumed you were talking about. The community about. is growing. And, and then, you were. The other thing that's interesting, we've talked about it last week a little bit, but Doug, we're going to Gen Con. Yes. Although, let me uh, put a bow on that. We're going to choose the winner uh, June 29th. So So next week. Yep. You got about a week to to get your entries in there uh, or sign up and get your one entry in there to, again, win a copy of Fire Tower from Goliath Games. Now on to Gen Con. I suppose you could sign up your children, your ma, your aunts, your uncles, anybody who you can get a hold of their (laughs) phone. If you wanted to, oh yeah, boost, boost our sign up, <laughs> mid max the fire tower sign up. Yeah, better not to say that to gamers. So yeah. They're going to find loopholes. Exactly. And we are going to Gen Con. Yep. I'm very excited to also announce that we got press badges approved, which is great. So we will be members of the press for Gen Con, which will be interesting. I don't know if we'll feel your guys um, on the street. Yeah. What, what do you think? I don't. We're going to do live check ins. Yep. <laughs> Uh, it's pretty hectic down here on the uh, exhibit hall. Uh, what's going on up over there in the uh, open gaming space, Michael? 
Well, and if somebody could hop on the Discord or just send us an email, where do I get coffee? I've heard nothing <laughs> good about the – it's coffee desert is what's described by our friends who've been there before. But Where can we'll, you get we'll, Diet Mountain Dew? <laughs> oh, I'm sure that won't be a problem. <laughs> It'll probably be right in the restrooms. Flowing in fountains. <laughs> right in the restrooms. You turn on the sink and comes Diet Mountain It'll be Dew. Like a, there'll be a chocolate fountain and a Diet Mountain Dew fountain <laughs> right next to each other. But that's exciting, and that's coming up. Yeah, I mean, right one, around the corner. One month from now, we'll be packing our bags and getting ready to go so that that's fun and we look forward to you know seeing all the games but if any of you are going to be there let us know it'd be fun to to play a game or check it out yeah and if you like following what's new the board game geek gen con preview has been posted so there are if you want to look at games that are going to be demoed available what publishers are pushing that is the place to look Uh, they really do a good job of that for every convention, they kind of put that list out there and you can kind of scroll through. I was going through recently and kind of earmarking some games. I'm like, ah, oh, this one looks kind of interesting. Yeah. And I want to learn a little bit more about that and things like that. So uh, that's that's pretty cool if you're interested in that type of thing. Anything else you want to talk about, Michael? No, not in the follow-up. How about you? Anything that's awesome with gaming? Oh, I or? thought I think getting press passes for Gen Con yeah, is awesome. That's that wasn't my <laughs> my what's awesome in gaming, not uh, not my follow-up. Okay, got it. Same. I'm following. <laughs> I, I I see what you're doing here. And any games that you played this week or recently with your kids? Nothing. I want to talk about. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Okay, some roll and move <laughs> games have been happening in the house. Huh? I've been enjoying my experiences of oh, the game of life. Good. It's all about the experience, and the gameplay is fun. I, it, in fact, I've played life so many times. I'm just trying gobs of different strategies. I wish you logged your plays. I would love <laughs> to see that. <laughs> maybe I'll get married. Maybe I won't. Maybe I'll go to college. Maybe I won't invest in this. Yeah, had a beauty salon that shut down. Cost me twenty grand. Crazy things happen in the game of life. So you and I have talked about this, but why don't you tell our (laughs) listeners what you're talking about? I have been playing the game of life with my daughters who just adore it, and they're having a great time. They love the the role-playing and filling up their cars with kids and pets and, um... You know, trying to find an uh, an awesome job. The one was an app developer, and and getting paid and getting excited when they get to buy a house and disappointed when they don't. And uh, it's been fun. I think a couple of weeks ago we talked about that. It's about the experience, and it's like I don't want to sound like I'm poo pooing the game because I have right. had fun with That's my awesome. kids and watching them play. And I, you know, it is what it is. I'm not going into it. I think that. Is another thing where it comes down to expectations of yeah. going into it. It's like I'm not playing that game expecting to get, uh, you know, deep thoughts <laughs> and uh, interesting, crunchy choices. It's like that's not what the game is about. Yeah. And I think if you set your expectations right and enjoy playing the game with your family, it, it works out fine. So I've had fun. Interesting. That's great. And the game of life is currently uh, ranked a 4.3 on Board Game Geek. Mm, that's Not shocking. surprising. Yeah. Uh, released in 1960, uh, designer Ruben Klamer and Bill Markham. So, way to go, Ruben and Bill. I, I hope they are getting well compensated for that work because that game has spanned decades. And you, you think know, they're still around? There are states. I hope there <laughs> Do you are think states. They are... played the game of life properly. <laughs> I hope so. Probably not. They probably got like $35 
at the time for their design contract, and that was it. Okay, one little board game note on the Game of Life while I'm looking at it. It says 8+, plus, but then Community says ages 6 to 18. And when you see a cutoff like 10 of Board Game Geek, it's saying that no one over the age of 18 <laughs> should play this game. Oh, that's I've, terrible. I don't think I've ever uh, seen that on the listing before. No, this this is, not, is the limit. This is not for an adult. An adult <laughs> cannot enjoy play. this game in any way. It's not allowed. It's almost like it's illegal. Right. Like you can't play it after that. No, no, I'm 18 and under. Sorry. Um, <laughs> it's like trying to to go into the ball pit at Chuck E. Cheese. Like this is not for you, <laughs> sir. <laughs> All right. Anything else? No. All right. Well, I want to remind everybody to spread the word about the podcast if you like what we're doing. Uh, and if you have any questions or comments, reach out to us. Email at gameschooler.com. Um, we also have a contact form on our website if you want to go there instead. Now, let's move on to the game of the week. The game of the week. Way to save that voice. The Game of the Week is an in-depth look at a family-friendly game we think you should try if you get the chance. This week's game is Dog Park. Doug, give us the stats. All right. Published in 2022 by Birdwood Games. The designer is Lottie and Jack Hazel. The art is by Kate Avery, Holly Exley, and Dan May. Uh, One to four players, 40 to 80 minutes. Ages 10 plus, the Board Game Geek community agrees that it is 10 plus. Um, 2.16 out of 5 complexity. I think it might be a little bit higher than that. I don't think I'd go that low. What about you? Yeah, um, I, I, I mean, we're splitting hairs a little bit, but I do think it's a 2.25 to a 2.4. Yes. Yeah, it's higher than a 2.16. Yeah. Which so, to me says that it's mostly those are gamers who've ranked it. That yeah, way. yeah, yep, exactly. Um, so... Dog Park is a mid-weight competitive set collection and point-to-point movement game in which players take on the role of dog walkers who recruit, walk, and care for their dogs over four rounds. Each round is split into four phases. There is the recruitment phase in which players compete in two rounds of offers to add dogs to their kennels. Their offers are made with players' reputation, which are their victory points. And so they must be placed wise. So you have a bidding phase and you are using your your victory points to bid on the dogs that you want to recruit into your kennel, uh, which can be very interesting uh, the way that, that that works out. And then you have a selection phase in which players decide which dogs from their kennel they're going to place on their lead or leash and walk them this round. So you're picking out of all the dogs in your kennel, which ones you want to take out for a walk which then leads into the walking phase in which players journey through the dog park with their fellow walkers and you're collecting resources, earning reputation and interacting with other walkers. Um, So in order to walk a dog and move it up from the selection into the, from the selection phase onto the leash to put them to actually take them for a walk, dogs require resources. So you need to either give them chew toys or, or treats or sticks or balls, uh, in order to kind of pay for them to take them for a walk. Then when you go on a walk, you're going to be collecting more of those for the next round when you do the selection phase in the, the in the subsequent rounds. Then you have a home time phase in which players earn reputation for their walk dogs and lose reputation for any unwalked dogs in their kennel. 
So once you walk a dog, it keeps a, a, a leash on it. And that one is kind of satisfied for the rest of the game. Yep. But if you have dogs in your kennel that you haven't walked, you're going to lose points for them. And players must choose their routes and dogs carefully to earn the best reputation and prove they're the most accomplished walker of them all. At the end of the game, the player with the most reputation wins. There are a couple cool things in this game that I really like. Um, every turn there is, or every round, there is kind of an event that kind of mixes up the rules and changes things for um, that round. So there's some variety in there. And then the treats and the items that are available on the walk get mixed up a little bit. Sometimes there's extra stuff out there. Uh, There are ways to swap dogs in and out of your kennel, which could be beneficial. Some of the dogs give you endgame scoring, provided that they've been walked and they're in your kennel. And other ones give you bonuses when you take them or when you put them on the leash to take them for a walk, that type of thing. And the I want I want to look up the base game of this comes with 163 dog cards. That's a lot of cards, Doug. So, so there are a lot of dog cards in this game. And they're unique. But that well, yes, every piece of artwork is unique, but one of the things that I do like about the game is that the abilities on the cards are not super unique. So yeah, there's there's almost a dog park shorthand that once you get it down, yeah, they're they're repeated quite well, so it doesn't become overwhelming where people are staring at a hand of cards for a long time, like what does this ability do? They're all very self-explanatory, and they all make sense. And once you learn them, one of the other things that you can earn points for is there is a breed bonus, kind of like a hierarchy that changes every game that you play, that you're going to have points, for example, if you have the most uh, terriers or utility dogs, hound dogs, toy, working, gun dogs, pastoral dogs. Those cards are kind of laid out as breed, as in this breed expert column. So the ones at the top are going to score more if you have the most of them at the end of the game. Right. It's an extra set collection bonus that gets interesting. And it also tells you on that card... How many cards in the deck, the percentage of The percentage them, of it. If, you know, so, so I have a 16% chance of seeing this type of dog versus yeah. I have a 37% chance of seeing this type of dog. Yeah. So like, for example, the hound, hound dogs are 17% of the deck. Yeah. So it, it does give you a, a little thing to kind of go after. There's some great resource management. Um, in this game, is there anything I'm missing about the general rules? I well, that- I, I the only thing you're not missing, but to, to add in, it is a great rule book. Uh, I'm I'm looking at the digital version right now. I looked at it earlier today to review the game, and that's not always the best way to prepare for a podcast. Is reviewing the digital rule book, <laughs> and it just brought the entire game back all the way from. It's very clear as to how you set up the game. And the phases of the game are, are laid out um, well. The um, other thing about just the general gameplay, there's a nice little competitiveness that happens very early on in the game. I don't know if you want to talk about that, but actually getting the dogs into your kennel and and that percentage of, okay, I guess what I'm trying to say is understanding that if you're playing in a three- or four-player game, those dogs that score out the most points are going to be the most coveted. So there's a strategy of, yeah, I might want to go towards that, or I could load up on the dogs that 
are still higher point scoring, but not as highly coveted. So I just think there's multiple strategies that that happen right out of the gate when you're immediately starting to get dogs into your kennel. Yeah. It's, uh, so the way that the the recruitment phase works is like in turn order, players are privately going to select a value on their dial, which is everyone has a dial that then you are bidding with your reputation points, your victory points. And that ranges from one to five. But then you place your dog, your walker, your your playing piece in the line behind the dog that you want to draft. And so it's interesting because then I know, okay, you want that dog potentially, but I don't know how much you bid. So you could have bid really low or really high. So does that scare me away from that dog where it's like, ah, I don't want to try and compete for it, or I'm just going to claim this one over there, yep. or I'm going to go there and then we compare. And if my bid is higher, even though I'm behind you in line, I'm going to get that dog. And then you get bumped to a different spot. Yeah. And so it's a really interesting mechanism for fighting over those dogs to to bring them into your kennel in that recruitment phase that happens right out of the gate. And even while you're walking your dog, there is um, you can move a certain number of spaces, but not more than that. And there's this kind of maneuvering and a race of if everybody's kind of staying back and collecting a lot of resources, that's one thing, but usually somebody's trying to raise ahead, race ahead and get those bonus points get some and get bonus the points. So yeah. there's, there's a lot of really interesting decisions. And I think that this, this game does a really good job. We'll talk about it more in, in the school of gaming when we talk about complexity, but this does a good job of having several different types of mechanisms in one game without being overly complex. So you're bidding for turn order. There's auction element. There's set collection. There's a walking track with a a race and speed element and order fulfillment trying to, you know, pay the the dogs walked, you know, get the dogs walked along with end game scoring achievement and all of these things on the cards without feeling like I'm playing a heavy Euro that's bogging me down and I, and is unapproachable. Well, and from a, a game schooling perspective, this is, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about Stone Age as a great game to teach worker placement. This is a different type of auction where you can give up your victory points in order to get more resources. And there aren't a lot of games that we cover that allow players, and we're talking kids or younger players, yeah. to say, yeah, you can actually, those points that you've earned, you can give them up, but is it worth it? And the scoring at the end of the game is so tight. Yeah. 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 When we, I can play this with my daughter and she is, which I I think when I say this, some gamers are going to be like, what you've just described is terrible. But the idea that my daughter can play this game and pick out dogs that she thinks are cute and want to add them to her kennel because they are cute and she can still remain competitive and or win the game. I love. I do too. But I think there are some gamers that are going to be like, oh, well, then what's the point of playing? But that's- You really should play bus with her so that <laughs> she can get the feeling of losing by 65. You know, so I like that that those opportunities are available. Um, and that's not to say that she's completely devoid of the idea of, oh, this one will help me score. Yeah, because the other part of it, the reason why she's scoring is because she's doing all of the other facets in the game that are required to score. Yeah. Right, so she may be giving up on some set collection bonus or something to get the cute dog, 
But then she's going to make sure that that dog's getting walked. She's going to get all the bonuses along the way. Yeah, yeah. She's going to take care of that dog. All right. What else do you like about the game? I love the interaction. Uh, There is enough competitiveness in here. Um, You know, I was reflecting today talking about games that uh, our game group has played recently that I really like that aren't always as much of a hit in the game group. And uh, my oldest daughter said, our our family, and then she changed it and said, me, you, and mom really love competitive games. And I started telling her about Dog Park because I think it doesn't have to be. This is a very nice, friendly, frenemy type game, but there's also a competitiveness to this game that activates every part of my mind where I want to try to conquer dominate. I like that. Yeah. It's in a beautiful, cutesy game. Yeah, well, it's, it's a, I think the idea of having competitiveness that doesn't involve knocking down other players. No. Right? So this is a a game that works really well of you're competing against everybody and you're fighting over the same resources and the same dogs. But there's, at a certain point, it's like you can block people, but you can't um, take, there's no take that, there's no stealing of resources, things like that that usually have negative connotations once you start getting into competitiveness. This one, I think, straddles that line to your point that you can you can play this and have a good time and, and just it can be very leisurely and kind of relaxed. You can play completely cutthroat yep. and I'm going to be the best dog walker and everybody else will be destroyed. And I think you can actually have both of those people at the same table without... It and having with each a great other. game experience. Yeah, that's unique from a lot of the games that we've covered. I think you can yeah. have the laid back person who may be watching the game in the background or distracted, and you can have the person who's hyper focused trying to get every single resource all along the way, and both are going to have fun playing it. Yeah, yeah. Um, the the production quality too. I mean, we've talked about it a few times. I I just can't believe what you get in this box. I I you have the deluxe version. A friend of mine has the standard retail version. They are both just so beautiful. I mean, with the 163 cards, um, it's one that I, I I cannot wait to get into my own collection and play solo. I haven't played it solo yet, um, but there's a lot going on here. I don't know if you want to switch and get into skills or if there are any critiques out there that we should let our listeners know about. But. Well, I do want to highlight the idea of, uh, and this may seem completely obvious and unnecessary to say, but... The artwork in this game, the fact that there is 163 dog cards that all have unique art, and the theme of this game is really awesome. You know, that this stands out from the pack. It It's beautiful to look at, like Michael said, the production quality. This is one that I debated on backing on Kickstarter and ultimately didn't for whatever reason. And then when it, once it came out, I was like, I need to get that. Like, yeah. I made a mistake by not backing this on Kickstarter. And I mean, I, I just think it's awesome. I mean, there are, there are, there are so many skills. I only put down a couple, but what, what do you have for skills? Well, I have resource management. Yep. I, I, so I had a hard time cutting it to three. In this segment, we're down to three. Um, but I had resource management, decision-making and tactical thinking and the resource management have to do with how are, I, I, can you just quickly review for me the the trade in phase of when you're 
collecting different resources and in which phase that happens. Do you know what I'm saying here? Yeah. So predominantly you're collecting resources while you're taking your dogs for on the walk. Walks. Yep. Some dogs do have bonuses that will give you resources. Uh, additional ones when you're collecting things on your walk. Sometimes dogs will give you resources when you put them on the leash. Some dogs will give you bonuses and different resources when you select them and put them into your kennel. So there are various different times to get resources, and then you are going to spend the resources to get them on the lead to take them for a walk. Yeah, and so that's where the resource management comes in. Just if you don't take them for a walk, you're not going to score out points. So figuring out how you're going to do that over the course of several rounds um, with the tactical thinking that that can, can I back oh, up? Oh yeah, 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 go Cause, ahead. Because I've got resource management as well, and one of the other things to keep in mind is it it plays into the idea of what resources you have, and then what dogs you are bringing into your kennel mm-hmm. because. That dog may be great, and maybe, you know, working dogs give me the highest bonus at the end of the game. I might be trying to collect them. But if I can't take that dog for a walk, maybe I don't want to bring that one into my kennel. Yeah. And so managing that level of resource of what do I have, what can I bring in, and what do I need to... So you're kind of always doing this, like, plan ahead um, management that is kind of unique then it's only order like, fulfillment almost. yeah one yeah. step ahead it's not overly complex but you do have to be like well that's a great dog but i can't take it for a walk this round so that's negative yeah. points is its ability or special part of it so great that i'm willing to lose points to hopefully take it for a walk the next round maybe maybe not you know and i think that decision making right there leads into the next skill of tactical thinking there is a level of being strategic, but you also have to adapt within the turn, um, especially in the bidding phase. If I get outbid or if, I, if I'm if i being cute and maybe get stuck with a dog that I didn't intend to get, but everybody else went low and I put out two thinking that everybody was going to go at least three or higher, I might have a dog that I didn't actually intend to get, but I wanted in the bid. So what do I do with it now? Uh, and then just Knowing how far out to go and which spaces to land on, yeah. Um, there's there's a lot of tactical thinking involved in this game as well. Yeah, I've got that wrapped up in problem solving. I think this is a great game for problem solving. A game that rewards players for finding solutions to simpler, complex problems. Whether that is how am I going to get the resources for this dog? Can I take this dog for a walk? You know, is this going to provide me end game scoring? Is this like all these little problems that you need to work out and try and get your machine working together properly yep. is one of the things I appreciate most about this game is that those decisions are happening all the time. It's forcing you to be tactical. You can have a little bit of long-term thinking, but you need to, you know, oh, they just took that spot. Now what am I going to do? Oh, they just did this. And so you have to find unique ways to solve the problems that you're faced with each round, which I think is really cool. Yeah, and then decision-making was a third skill because of everything that you just talked about. I was listening to that monologue. I was following along, (laughs) and what you talked about, I think I counted eight different decisions that you just made right there, and that is on every single turn because you usually have two to three really good options. Yeah. And so which decision am I going to make? We've defined that as a game that allows players to make decisions based on currently or previously available information. So I know if, okay, if... The person sitting on my right 
they they like to race and get to the end and get those points. That's so, impossible. You are yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm talking about me, folks. How could and so that impacts the decision that I make. I'm going to send it back to you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think this is a good game that that adds, um, and I think having the cards with with only a hit, you know, I think there's what maybe ten ten to fifteen different types of abilities in the game mm-hmm. spread across those based on the the index here. Um, that are spread across those 163 dogs. So this is a great game that adds that variety without adding complexity. Sure. So similar to Flamecraft, where it's like, yeah, you've got six or seven different dragon types, but they all share the same abilities uh, based on their color or their their grouping. It really makes it easy to pick up, and it adds variety to the game that I can have all these different dogs and they all require different resources, but the abilities are streamlined. So I don't feel like I'm learning a whole bunch and I don't have to have this gigantic player aid next to me with every icon on it to say, oh, what does this do again? What does this ability, what does this thing mean? Yeah. And it's just refreshing to not have that. And a game that has variety, you know, those event cards come up and you don't know which cards are going to come up, which dog cards you're going to be able to add to your, your kennel. There's variety, and it keeps it fresh, but it's not overwhelming, which I think is, is a really cool thing. Anything you think people should be aware of about this well, game? I, I'm going to speak to our gamers in the crowd who may not have played it yet, but who have may. I'm going to be a little arrogant here, man, so just give me a little bit of grace and then <laughs> chop me down, okay? But... When we first got this, when you got this game, I say we because I played a lot with you, but it was at the same time where it was being reviewed by a lot of content creators. Mm. And I heard over and over and over and over and over and over and over comparisons to Wingspan. And I thought that that was an injustice to Dog Park because to me, I, oh, it'd be great to be compared to one of the greatest games of all time, highest selling. I'm sure they're happy here, but this game stands alone just yeah. because it has beautiful pastels, amazing art, and a lot of mechanics. I, I don't really get that comparison. I think it is a um, game that stands alone that. That's a reductionist comparison. I would say the people who are making that comparison have played a lot of Wingspan, and maybe they got a demo of Dog Park and made a comparison. But in my experience with playing this game, it's it's unique. And we've had a few different groups of people that you have introduced this game to who then go out and buy it, and they're off and running with their families. And yeah. they may have a dozen total games in their collection. So that says a lot about the game. So any of the critiques that I have heard out there from other reviewers who review for a living, um, I just have a different perspective with this game. I, I don't know if you get what I'm saying. Yeah, but no, I, I agree 100%. I think the only thing that this game shares in common with Wingspan is the artwork, and it's a game about animals. That is it. There is no... Um, mechanism crossover the things that you are doing on your turn are not similar there is no comparison outside of if you looked at these side by side the covers you would think that they were done by the same person yeah the artwork it's a very similar artwork style well and both games have huge stacks of cards with unique animals on them so, yeah and that's where the comparisons end. yeah um now for me this is a, a 
game that's coming back to Kickstarter. I'm going all in. I'm getting super deluxified. We just got done celebrating Father's Day here in the United States. I get to play one game a year on Father's Day. I get to the table. I can tell you what Father's Day 2024 is going to look like. I hope it delivers by then. We're going to get a whole lot of dog parking. And I think it is that type of game that will live in our collection for a long time. You know, there's just a, a staying power to this game. Yeah, especially when you're not going to see, you know, you might get through a third of the deck in a game, if that. If that, yeah. You know, so that variety um, is going to be going to be big. I think this game fits the best with families and, and gamers. Yeah. Uh, There's not an after-school game. It's not a, a library game for the most because part. Because it runs an hour, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. L- length and, and rules teach. Not to say that it's a complex rules teach, but once you throw that on there, you're starting to... You know, creep into the hour and 15 minutes, that type of thing, hour and a half uh, for your first game. So one that's going to, you want the time to let it breathe. You don't, this is not a game that you want to feel like you're looking at the watch, making sure you're trying to fit it in. This is a game, this is a game you play after dinner, not the game that you play right right before dinner and, and somebody's complaining that they're hungry, like Give it time to breathe, sit on the table, and have a good time with it. Anything else on that one? No. All right. Well, that is our game of the week. Uh, that is Dog Park by Birdwood Games. If you get a chance, we think you should try it. Let's move on to the School of Gaming. The School of Gaming! In the School of Gaming, we discuss concepts, keywords, etiquette, and helpful ideas, we hope, in the world of gaming. This week, we'll be discussing what makes up complexity. So, complexity on Board Game Geek has a five-point scale. One is light, two is medium light, three is medium, four is medium heavy, and five is heavy. And in Board Game Geek in the description, it says, how heavy, difficult slash complex is this game? This is, in within the hobby, something Doug and I certainly talk about a lot, on air, off air. Um, and we're going to go in a few different places um, with it today. The, the thing that really strikes me about how games are rated on Board Game Geek is how limited people are when they are rating it. So if I go into rate a game, you're talking complexity, complexity, not, not necessarily the enjoyment level. Yeah, just to clarify. Yeah. yeah, if I go into weight a game and I was like, I think this is a two and a half. Well, what do I weight it? Do I weight it a three? Do I weight it a two? And people who are making that decision. Um, you know, I don't know how other people are making that decision, but I do look at what is already there and then try to skew the rating to the direction that I believe is more accurate. And I think other people do that as well. So that's, that's kind of the board game geek thought on complexity. And I, I have three things that I think of with complexity, but before I just dive in and unpack that, I'm already tired of the sound of my voice. Is there anything that you wanted to go with, with the segment here? No, I, I, I'd like to see what your, cause I think I've got, uh, I've got three things as well. Good. So I'm curious to see where we have crossover where, yeah. If there's, if there's overlap or not. So we recently had a game day, uh, with a friend of ours, Phil up at Phil's cabin 
and we played a bunch of games, almost a dozen games. And one of them was very complex and they ranged in complexity. But when I think of complexity and, and reflecting back on that, that recent game day, my three things are one is startup time. And mm-hmm. I define startup as setup plus teaching. How long does it take to get all the fiddly bits out? How long before you are, as Doug, Doug would often say, up and running, right? So setup plus teaching is going to be startup time. And then the second thing with complexity is, and so a game with you know very low startup time, that's going to be lower on the complexity end, right? If it takes me an hour to set it up and another hour to teach it, that's going to be towards that five on complexity. The second thing, though, is time per round. And I'm defining a round as when my turn is completed, basically from like turn to turn, and how much time before it's my turn again. And do I have anything to do on other people's turns? So am I just doing one thing and then I'm sitting and waiting five minutes before I do another one thing? And that might set off other chains or actions, or do I have responsibilities off turn when there's Mm -hmm. other people's turns? And then the third one is very wordy, work. So that's kind of my, my three-part um, thoughts around complexity is the startup time, the time per round, and looking at just the individual player. Um, and then that third one is work. Do I feel like I am at work sorting through a database, putting together pivot tables, handling phone calls that I don't want to handle, and trying to be yeah. diplomatic and masterful, or... Do I feel like I'm playing a game? Am I am I actually in in a world immersed environment? So um, that's kind of the three things that I think of when I'm talking about complexity. Yeah, I think uh, my three things have to do more with the idea of um, three things that complex games seem to have in common. I'm Ooh, noticing noticing a trend that these things pop up when I play a game, and I'm like, ah, too complex for me. One of the first things is exception rules, where you tell me these are the rules for the game, but I have to remember that every time you do this action, you get one coin, or that action, you get a point and a coin. And this action, if you take this variation of an action, it leads down this other little rabbit hole. Once you start adding those, and there's all those little sections in a rule book, and trying to teach that and make sure that people are remembering it during a game and then it pops up. I think that's one of the things that kind of triggers into that work level where it's like, ah, oh, we played half the game and we screwed that part up. Yep. Like we weren't taking that action or somebody wasn't. Or like, oh, oh, right. I remember it on the fourth and third rounds. You can't go there. You have to, you can only go there on the fifth round. Like things like that where it's like, and I think they come from designers putting limiters and, and balancing things like, okay, this is too overpowered if you can do it this way. So we need to figure out a way to, to cut it down. So I think that's one of the things that pops up in a lot of complex games is that hard to remember exception rules that they just kind of clog up the, the gameplay, you know, when you, and, well, and especially a lot of those games have multiple phases. So now you're getting yeah. into multiple phases with multiple layers of exception rules, right? Yeah. And so when you talk about the amount of setup and, and teaching and things, those are things that get lost and make it super complex for the person trying to teach it because they're like, all right, I, 
sometimes people then get so caught up in the exception rules while they're teaching that they forget the actual basic actions of what you're doing on a turn because there's so much that you're trying to remember while you're teaching it, which becomes a problem. Um, The other thing I feel like that has been popping up and has really, I don't know if this is just a trend, but it seems to be more popular now is the idea, and it really makes a game, it's a huge turnoff for me of when it gets too complex, is that there are too many combos and triggers where the chains become too long to the point where it's like, okay, I did this action, and because I did this action, like, I don't mind if I did this action, I get a bonus. Great. But we are now getting into a place where there's a lot of games that have Not only do I get this bonus, but that bonus allows me to take this bonus action. And because I triggered that bonus action, I now get to do this. And then that bonus turns back over here. And so now somebody's taking like five turns, six turns on a single turn, which then triggers back to what you were talking about. Is like, what am I doing between my turn? So it's like, if I'm just sitting over on across the table watching Michael do 12 combos, waiting for him to resolve his turn and trying to keep track of what you know, it's that like time per round just went through the roof. Yeah, where yeah. it's like, okay, I'm gonna need, I'm gonna need to get all these pennies out so I can track and remember what I need to do because I've just triggered so many things. Those are often in complex games. Um, the last thing I think contributes, and and I find in a lot of games, is that the mechanisms of the game are abstracted too much where I can tell that a designer is focusing more on the system than the theme. And in my opinion, unless you have a very simple kind of abstract game, I think that the theme and the mechanism should be intertwined that, that in a, in like a slick, perfect game that those mechanisms, like neither one is more important than the other. The mechanism is there to service the theme and the theme is there to service the mechanism and I feel like I've been playing some of the more complex games that we've played have had more of an emphasis on, I wanted to do this cool action and who cares if it doesn't make sense with the theme that we're doing, it, it makes a cool whatever. And it's more the system and the structures are more important, which then to me, when there's no attachment to the theme or, or very loosely, and I feel like I could put any other theme on this. It makes it very hard to remember what the phases are or what I do yeah. next. Um, Distilled is a very good example of that where I think it's on the more complex side, but the mechanisms and the themes of what you're doing are so interwoven that it's kind of easy to remember, like, of course I need to put the ingredients into yeah, you know my washback yeah, to make the, my the, the phases lead to each other. They scaffold perfectly and from so, one phase to the so next. So I think that's one of the things where sometimes the the mechanisms are highlighted more so than the theme. And I think that in a perfect world, those should be equal. And that's not to say I don't care for abstract games or that I think every game needs to have a theme. I just think that there is a limit to the the complexity that you can add without having a theme basing um, uh, as a foundation. Yeah. It's interesting because in the six different pieces that we outlined for what makes up complexity, we didn't really talk about time. Yep. I mean, it's there in the in the startup and it's there in the exception rules. So each of us kind of brought it in. But 
that is another element of complexity. If a game takes more than 180 minutes, uh, and, and I'm speaking personally here, I'm not speaking professionally as a podcaster, right? <laughs> but if a game takes more than three hours, that is usually a more complex system. Yeah, it yeah, it definitely there is a strong correlation. Um, I put that time uh, in my notes. Time does not necessarily equate to complexity, although they are often very closely related. Mm-hmm. And I, me personally, I fall into a thing is like I don't mind length. That's not necessarily something like I don't. If it says two hours, that's not. It it is a flag for me. Definitely, yeah. I'm going to look at it and say. All right, two I was about hours. To call you out on that, but you, you, no, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's definitely a flag for me in the upfront. Yeah. However, if a game is going to stretch more than two hours, for me, there needs to be a journey, a story, yeah. something that is interesting choices. Like combos are cool, but I don't need to make combos for two hours. Yeah. <laughs> like I don't need to change stuff or have a super efficient engine that after three hours is is humming along like. Give me an engine builder in an hour, great. And the the longer games that I tend to enjoy usually have a simple rule set and are adding more story elements to the theme as opposed to complexity with rules. Oh, that's interesting. You know, so to me, if if the game needs to go long, it needs to make up for it with theme and story and journey, then I've never been one, um, and we might differ in this regard, but it's like I've never been one that has fallen in love with a mechanism. That's never my my thing. It was like, oh, I just really love how they do this. Like that doesn't draw me to games, and it it does for me. Uh, the The issue is it doesn't, especially with complex games, it doesn't draw enough players that I know to the table. Yeah. So I have about a half dozen solo games that are much more on the complex side that I like, that I play, that I will play solo. I don't know if I'll have them five years from now, but they don't feel like work. But you so also when, have no downtime when yeah. you're solo, which is yeah. why it's awesome. It's like that, then that that's so so two out of the three things on my list are eliminated. Yeah. So yeah, the startup could be cumbersome. It might take me eight hours to get into that game. An hour to set up, seven hours to to learn it and play it, or to stumble through the first few rounds. But that's my time. Yeah. I'm not bringing other humans to the table and saying, for the next three and a half hours, one, you're going to have to put up with my rules teach. Two, I probably got a third of the rules wrong because I've only played it solo. <laughs> three, just bear with me. That's not even part of the intro. In that yeah. solo experience, I'm, I'm choosing. And then when I look at what you're talking about, about with your three things that you outlined, the exception rules are definitely a challenge when I'm playing a game solo because I can feel it. I could feel like, oh, I'm not doing something right. And that that nagging, that feeling, <laughs> I, I can't something. stand that. And then the second thing with the too many combos and triggers, there is a time, even playing a game solo, where the bookkeeping, I will, and I have had this happen with more than one game. I've invested the time to learn the rules. I'm playing it. I'm halfway through. I look down. And I say, I'm not smart enough to play this game. I'm not that kind of doctor. <laughs> and, and it's just a moment of realization, wrap up the game, trade it or sell it, and walk yeah. away. So even in that solo world, 
for me personally, there's a level of complexity that I'll get to. I'm just like, well, that's when it triggers into work, right? Yeah. That's where it crosses over that boundary. I think that's, I think it makes a lot of sense. And and some people like that. There was an interesting thing on the, the discord, I think that came up, which is the idea of the game school podcast discord. Yes. That one. Exactly. Um, the idea of, I find it unique that games can have the ability. So it's like if you have a crazy, hectic day at work, mm-hmm. that you can come home and play something light and enjoy your time and like just kind of like let loose and be like, oh, ooh, that day's over. I'm just going to unwind. On the flip side, it's like if you work in a factory or you have a day where it's like your entire day felt like, like sometimes I've got spreadsheet days yeah, and it's like, I just felt like I would, and not even spreadsheet days. It's almost like just like monotonous, like tab, tab, tab. You feel like you're doing the same thing or you're putting the same widget in the box for eight hours. That's like, sometimes I want to come home and play a game that actually my brain needs to work, you know, and you can play something a little crunchier and activate that brain part that was not activated for the entire day. And that this hobby has both ends of them, those spectrums. So it's like, I appreciate that some people need that or enjoy that, or, you know, those figuring out, you know, in my day to day, it's like, I am solving problems. I am trying to figure out logistics, how to get this order to here from there. All that type of stuff is happening every day that I'm at work. So sometimes the idea of playing a game that does that is not appealing to right. me. But I appreciate how it could be appealing to other people. And I do think it's interesting to Michael and I have had a lot of these discussions about what what does make complexity. You know, why is this game and what what almost the idea of what tips it over the scale, right? Where is that edge of where I don't mind this amount of complexity, but when does it become too much? And I think that's in the idea of figuring out which games to try, buy, and investigate further. It's like trying to come up with a shorthand of like, I can think out of the gate that this one probably isn't going to be for me. Yep. And and kind of develop a shorthand so I can spend more time playing and investigating the games that will work for me as opposed to ones that just miss it by maybe a fraction. Yeah. You know? So any other thoughts on complexity? Not without going into a full segment. I was just <laughs> talking about how it is on Board Game Geek, but I'm I'm gonna sidebar that. We'll all right. We'll, we'll come back to that in ten or twelve episodes. That sounds good. All right, let's move on to uh, the high five for this week. If you're anything like us, you're constantly on the hunt for new games to try out. This week, uh, we're going to talk about our high five party games for gamers. A couple weeks ago, we did uh, party games, and both Michael and I kind of had a list that were too big, and it seemed like there was a little bit of a divide, certainly in my list, where I said, you know, these are games that are are awesome party games, but you really need to have people that want to invest in the rules and and learn them and 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 dive a little deeper. They're not they're not your outbursts and categories where any Joe Blow off the street is just gonna dive right in, right? 
I agree with that. And number five for me. <laughs> Diving right in. I, I am. I'm taking your cue. I'm, I'm, I'm that guy up the street. Uh, number five for me has a fifth anniversary edition coming out. It is currently the number one party game on Board Game Geek. That's Decrypto, a game that is absolutely fun. It's designed by, I'm, I, I give me a little bit of latitude on the name here, uh, Thomas Deganey. Les Berons, who has also designed one of my personal favorite games of Wayfinders and has designed Miller Zoo, a game that's upcoming that we'll be looking at here this summer. But let's talk about Decrypto. Decrypto is three-day players. It's 15 to 45 minutes. The complexity on it is a 1.81, and there is just a fun little puzzle going on as you are trying to decipher um, different elements within this game. Um I'm going to hold, make eye contact with Doug to see if he's going to be describing this later on in our episode. I will be, yes. Then I will pause. Okay. All right. My number five is it may come as a shock to some people, and they're going to scream at their car radio while they're listening to this and tell me what a moron I am. But this is a unique game that I feel like plays... Oh, boy. You usually don't do the caveats. I'm excited. This is a game that I think plays very differently depending on the group that you are playing with. Okay, so my number five is Codenames, published in 2015 by Czech Games Edition. Uh, the designer is Vlada Shavado. We talked about it in some episodes. 26. <laughs> Michael. It must be on Michael's list. So this is a game that you can play full-out party mode with non-gamers, and they're going to have fun, and it's a very different environment. This is what I would describe, and it sometimes I feel like it is a misnomer that it's called a party game, and it ranked very high as a party game, but this is a great game for gamers, uh, a larger group of gamers to get together and play a game, and it's heads down, fun, low man. thinking, but they can kind of get into their gamery world. Um that I think this is a great party game for gamers. This is what this is what gamers think a party game is. It's not really a party <laughs> not, game. Yeah, this is a gamer game that gamers play at a party. Yes. <laughs> so so that's my number five code names. It's basically two guys are uh, two people are sitting on one side of the table. They have a grid in front of them with words. They are giving clues, trying to get their team to guess the words that are theirs without secretly flipping over the assassin card, which would uh, lead to immediate loss. If you want more explanation on the game, head over to episode 26, neatly in our archives, for a better explanation. That's excellent. My number four is Coup, C-O-U-P. This is a 2012 game. Um, it's two to six players, so again, higher player count. It's 15 minutes. It's done quickly. Complexity, really easy to teach, 1.41 out of 5. It's similar to the game Mafia, if you've played that growing up in some ways. It shares some similarities. But in the in Coup, C-O-U-P, each player starts the game, so you get two coins and two influence and two face-down character cards, right? And it's a 15-card deck, which and in that deck it has three copies of five different characters, and the characters all have unique powers. You have a duke, an assassin, a contessa, a captain, an ambassador, and they all do slightly different things within the game, and they all have slightly different um, win conditions. I really enjoyed um, 
playing this game with a, a group that I was playing with for the first time. I was uh, it was last year I played um, games in an evening and I only knew one person at the table and this one kind of drew me into the group. I was able to be my own unscrupulous, hyper competitive self and got after it and had a really good time. So uh, n- another small box game. Uh, there is a lot of game in that little box and it's from 2012, you know, so the production quality is not as beautiful as some of the other games, but it has its own little appeal as well. Yeah. So that's, that's my number four coup. Okay. I think I've only played that one time and it was, uh, a while ago. I I could see that going bad for a lot of people in a lot (laughs) of settings, but from a, if you're approaching it from a party game style and you want to do something a little bit more than just some of the games that we talked about a few weeks back, I'd say yeah. Coup would be in that category. All right. My number four um, is is a game that is a trivia game that is very unique that brings out the, the gamer element. Uh, so does my number three, actually. But this one is Half Truth. It's published in 2020 by Nighthawk Interactive. And the designers, you may know them, as Sir Richard Garfield and Ken Jennings, who was the dominant Jeopardy player. Is he the host now? One of the hosts? I don't know that. Um, anyway, in Half Truth, there's a question. You thought I was going to be down on the Jeopardy host. <laughs> Go ahead. Well, I Pop culture, not his strength right now. I'm assuming that's Coaching basketball, did. raising kids, doing the game score podcast. I just, Carry assume, on. I just assume that's what you did after every, every afternoon. Not anymore. Um, the, in Half Truth, there's a question with six answers, uh, but only three of them are right. And so you need to choose the correct ones. And there's a little bit of the the scoring kind of changes from round to round. And there is a little bit of like, press your luck, because it's like you only want to answer the ones that you know. But you get more, and, and if you answer more and you get one wrong, so if you put two on the right ones and one on the wrong one, it negates your whole thing. You are not getting any points for that round. So you want to really be positive that you know. And because you know that three of them are right, it's like it gives you a chance. It's not like uh, Trivial Pursuit or something like that where it's like, oh, you either know the answer or you don't. This one adds that unique element to it where you can actually know very little and still play the game well, mm. where somebody else gets over eager and is like, sure. oh, yeah, this, this, and this, and then they're wrong. And they're not getting any points. You can kind of chip away just by guessing what or or you know what you're sure of. And so I think it's a really cool game the way that they and I think that's based on the designers. There's that gamer element and there's the trivia element and works really well together. That's my number four half truth. Yeah, that's a great one. It's one that we've played with our, our wives and had a good time. The other day, I was moving it on a shelf, and I uh, there's a that's a heavy box. Yes, what is in that thing, man? Six hundred, like, like five or six hundred cards. Okay, that's what, yeah. that's what's causing the weight. I was like, oh my goodness, what is in this? Yeah, I thought I, I my kids put a doll or something <laughs> in there, left some gold behind. No, that's that's a great game, good one, Doug. Number three, you talked about code names. Uh, is number three for me. Uh, it jumped a little bit too aggressively into that one, but the only thing I'll add on. That game is everywhere right now. And oh, there's yeah. so many different versions, but it is in hobby stores. It's in grocery stores. It, I am seeing code names all over the place. Where other board games are not, there's code names. Yeah. And so that widely, that level of accessibility and availability, um, I think also just says a lot uh, about the title. Yeah, great game. 
Uh, my number three is a kind of a series of games. The first one that was released uh, was called Fauna. Then they released a game called Terra. And the third one was called America, published in 2008, 14, and 16, respectively. The designer is Friedman Fries. Uh, the last one was also co-designed by Ted Alsbach. And two of the three were published by Bezier Games. So what are these games? It started out with Fauna, and it is a game in which there's usually like three uh, elements on every card. One of them, so in the, the animal one, is where does it live? You know, where is its habitat? In the It's a map of the world. And then there is a height, a weight, and maybe a lifespan type of thing. So stuff that usually you don't know, like I don't know what the life average lifespan of a gorilla is. I have some idea where seven years is it? No, <laughs> um, but the way that the game works is on your turn you place a cube out on the board. So maybe I'm going to put one, you know, in in Africa somewhere, or I'm going to say oh, the average weight is going to be 400 pounds and put a cube there. And then other people are going to go around until everybody's like, yeah, I'm not putting any more. You pass. And then you flip over the card and you reveal um, what the answers are. So if you're 100% correct, you get your cube back and you get a certain amount of points. If you're adjacent to that, so if you're one space away or things like that, you get your cube back, you get some points. If you're completely wrong, you're not within the region, you lose that cube. Yeah. And so... Uh, Fauna did it with animals. Terra was about the world and America was about the United States. So it would be like, you know, when did, uh, Pizza Hut and it might be the, where did it start? What year? And some, something else. Uh, there's three, like what was the biggest pizza ever made? And you have to, to guess the weight or something like that. So it's a trivia game that has bidding mechanisms and things that just make it again different from you either know the answer or you don't. Yeah. It's like if I was playing this game and with my daughter and Panda came up and I see where she puts something, I'm going to try and place it next to her because she loves pandas. I'm going to assume that she knows better than I do to make a guess. And I really like that. We talked about wits and wagers in the last party one, which has a similar thing. It was like, if I can piggyback on other people's knowledge, yeah, that makes a trivia Just game. Just by observing the room, I'm able to yeah. play at a higher level. That's so fun. That's my number three, Fauna Terra America. Uh, your choice. <laughs> three different games there, folks. Yeah. So you're not scrambling trying to find <laughs> that board game geek country. Yeah. Those yeah. are three different games. Three different that's games. That's great. Yep. Number two for me, I don't think will come as a surprise to list, even recent listeners of the podcast. It was our, our recommended game back in episode 121, just a few episodes ago, and that's Sheriff Nottingham. It plays three to five players in an hour, and there's just so much um, fun that's happening as you are trying to get your goods past the sheriff, whether they are legal or illegal. It involves bribery. There's high five moments. There's slapping the table moments in joy and anger. Um, it's it's a great game. And we just talked about it a few episodes ago, but that to me is a, a party game plus. Um, not one to, to, to get to the table for folks who you know, aren't ready to play and get after it a little bit. But if somebody wants to play games, uh, um, even if they're, they don't play a ton of games, Sheriff of Nottingham with its easy rules and, and lots of fun is a good place to go. Yeah. I think that's a great game for gamers 
with, and especially if you could put the caveat in there of like, we're playing this as a party game. Yeah. It's like, if you're going to, if you're <laughs> yeah. going to be a gamer and you're going to come into this game, full serious head down, mid max, we're, we're going to find a different game. No, yeah. So I think the, the, the caveat of gamer party Let's go. And the moment in that game where you can really push people, if you take the sheriff, encourage bribes, take the bribes, and then still open the envelope, you know, so you could, there are, there are, the rule set allows for a level of fun and frivolity that will let people play a character that they might not normally get to play. Yeah. And so that's, that's where it is for me. All right. Yep. Awesome game. My number two is kind of, Taboo on Steroids, and that is Trap Words, published in 2018 by Czech Games Edition. Um, Jan Brezina, Martin Horabilek, and Michael Pazarek are the designers of that one. And this is a game where you are working through a dungeon, but similar to Taboo, where one player on a team, you're going to divide up into teams, uh, one player on the team is going to be giving clues to their teammate in order for them to guess a word. In Taboo, that card is given to you that says, you cannot say these words, which is great. In Trap Words, the other team is making a list of words that if you use them in your clue, you get buzzed and your round ends. And so that's it, it adds this wrinkle of, oh, I think they're going to use hair they're going to say hair when they try and describe this. There's no way that they don't. And when you catch somebody in that word, it's awesome. When somebody, you know, every time somebody gets through and, and is able to get their teammate to guess a clue and they are, it's almost like watching a spy or a ninja go through lasers, yeah. you know, and just tiptoe around the room. Well, and there's never, that dungeon <laughs> aspect too, where you're the, moving through the dungeon. Yeah, nothing. You never set anything off. It's like, oh, I cannot believe you just, you yeah. did that without saying. You got through there with your twinkle toes. <laughs> without saying <laughs> the words that we put on our list. So it's, it's super fun. I'm usually not a huge fan of like word games like that, but this adds just a fun element to it. And I think the theme on top of it is what would make it appealing to gamers and make it like, oh, this is a gamer game. We're not yeah. just playing taboo. We're playing trap words. Well, the first time you described that game to me, you you basically said it's a word game and it's also described as a dungeon crawl. You just have to play it and you're going to love it. And then basically a week later, I used the exact same description to play the game with my wife <laughs> and we, we it's in our collection. We love this game. This yeah. is a great um Tell me another game where you have all the different pieces where you're trying to navigate through 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 the use of words. Yeah. Um, so yeah. yeah, taboo on steroids. Great description for that. All right. What do you got? Number one. Number one is Quacks of Quedlinburg, episode forty nine, game of the week. Um, might not be a traditional party game because it only plays to four people, but the the complexity. It's under two. It plays in under an hour, and if you have, this is a couples game. I guess if I had to put it anywhere, if you have a, if you're a gaming couple and you have friends over who may not play a ton of games, you get out quacks and get it to the table. Really easy to teach, and, and like we talked about in episode forty nine, you're pulling tokens out of a bag until you bust. 
right? I think the the number is seven. Um, and when you hit that number of a specific token, your turn is over. And so you're also trying to advance on a potion cauldron um, on your turn as you go. And the art, Dennis Lohausen's art, really pulls people in. This is a, a game that when it got to our table at our house, uh, or when it gets to our table at our house, just seems to draw people to it. And then if, even though I've played it a dozen times or more, um, there's so many different ways you can vary it up by just changing the abilities of what the tokens do. Um, so no two games are ever stale or the same. So although it is a, a heads down, I'm playing on my board game, uh, there's a little bit of interaction just seeing what other people are doing and how they're trying to get their milestones. So that's my number one is Quacks of Quedlinburg. All right. I don't necessarily agree with you as a party game, but your explanation of a a dinner party with couples. <laughs> I, I had can, enough caveats for I, it to stand. I can I can see that, but not I, I think the player count would restrict it yeah. for me. But that's just me. Um my number one is Decrypto. Michael talked about this earlier. This is 2018 by La Scorpion Masque. It is one of the hardest games. I've ever tried to explain. Notice where I paused in my description. <laughs> Just go back three and a half and, minutes. And teach. Yeah. However, once you are up and playing it, it makes sense. It's it's one of those, it's like, can we just play around and you'll see how it works and then we'll be good for the rest of the night. The way that it works is that in front of you, you have four words facing you or three words. This is three or four, four, four words. Yeah. Four, two, one. And you get a code on it, a code card with three numbers on it. It is going to be one, two, three, or four in, in an order. I then need to make a clue for my teammate to get them to guess the words that are on our sheet in the correct order. The opposing team is also going to be doing the same thing. However, when I am giving my clues to my teammate, the other team is listening. And so they are then going to be keeping a log of what the key, the keywords that we're giving to then hopefully potentially guess what our four words are. And if they can do that, or if they can break our code, so as I give the clues to my teammate, the other team is going to try and guess what the code is as, as well, what that number combination and if they say one four three and it was one four three, they're going to get points. If they can do that two or three times, they're going to win the game. Or if we get to the end of the game and nobody has done that, if they can guess what the words are, they win. And so, in in explanation, it's got those uh, the kind of red, the red yeah. uh, old school like nineteen eighties filter. Yeah. filter that makes the uh, the blurry words into. To um, so you can see them, kind of that decoder ring type thing. It's got a really cool setup, but the teach is always kind of clunky. Cumbersome. It's a clunky teach, and I I think this would fit in great in a in a board game group. I think this would like in a board game club, middle school board game club. I think this would fit in great in a lot of places, but you have to do a partial play to teach it. 
I mean, I, I, I wouldn't know any other way to teach this game without saying, hey, we're just going to run through this first round in a two-on-two matchup here, and then we'll reset it and go, here's how yeah. this works. Well, it's definitely one that I'd have to investigate to see if there is like a good rules video that somebody's done like a, a three, three to five-minute teach of like, I, I think Yellow used to have one. That was just even just like the basic premise of the game, not even of getting into rules, but just that kind of back and forth. If you can see it played out yeah. without having to even play the round, there might be some some more video help than there was a while ago. So, But there's a reason it's number one. It's a, it's a phenomenal party game, but it's certainly not a party game that you're just going to whip out with grandma and grandpa and think that you're going to go to town. I think this is one that you've got you got to have investment from people a little bit. Yeah, you better just do Crokinole or one of those yeah. if that's your plan for the night. Uh, there is a fifth anniversary that is is coming out, so we, we try to avoid the buzz and the hotness. I know I've talked about it a little bit uh, this episode with Dog Park and Decrypto, but these are two games that I've had my eye on for a while. I'm, I'm looking forward to to getting Decrypto into my collection, so it's a great one. All right, so there's a, a list of, what, eight Eight uh, party games you can play with your gamer friends. And Quacks of Quedlinburg. <laughs> and Quacks of Yeah, so, so there's seven. <laughs> seven. Seven games. Um, it's one of those things that in planning, it sounded really good because in my head I could see it. <laughs> but then when I got to the table, I was like, why do I have that at once? <laughs> I'll allow it. Uh, reminder to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. So like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at GameSchoolerU. Next week, we're going to be talking about Museum Suspects, something in the school of gaming, and we're going to talk about games that fell through the cracks, so games that are in our collection that we just love, that nobody seems to talk about, and maybe shine a light on some games that we don't get to talk about as much as we would like. So thank you so much for spending the last hour or so with us. We truly appreciate it. Now get out there and keep gaming.